This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. Yo, hola, everyone. This is Nuestra Palabra. Latino writers have their say. I am your guest host, Rodrigo Bravo Jr., filling in for Tony Diaz, El Libro Traficante, and author of the book, The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. And even though Tony may not be here, ya sabes que le damos esquina al Libro Traficante and continue talking about cultivating cultural community capital. We, of course, want to thank all of our listeners you might be listening first via our live stream here where we broadcast to various social media platforms, including YouTube and Facebook. This video will also appear on fox26houston.com. We appreciate our allies there who promote our work. And then the audio version on our first platform, 90.1 KPFT. And of course, I have to pause here and remind our listeners that we hope that you can budget a donation to KPFT in the name of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers have their say, so that you can do our part to keep this great experiment and freedom of speech going, we want to make sure that we can always put together shows like this, our terms on our terms. Of course, we are also high-stick Aztecs, or in my case, Wi-Fi Chichimecas. So there's also a version that will appear on your favorite podcast streaming platform like Spotify, Apple, or Google. You can also find all of our past episodes there as well. Today, Nuestra Palabra welcomes Jose Rolat and Gustavo Ariano to the show to discuss their work covering cultura and nuestra gente, especially through food. On our show, we'll also be specifically talking about the Tex-Mex food, its evolution, and how that reflects on our Latinidad. Both of our guests will be appearing at the Irma and Emilio Nicholas Media Center in collaboration with the City of San Antonio World Heritage Office to talk about the great essay Tex-Mex debate, to discuss Tex-Mex how it happened, and why it's so controversial. And before I go into the bios and talk about how amazing these people are, let me just say hi really quick to Gustavo and Jose, not only stalwarts of our community, but chingones in their own right, my friends as well, compas. What's going on, y'all? How y'all doing today? What's up, man? What's up? Hey. We, unfortunately, this is being done digitally instead of us going on a seven- Seven taco crawl in like five hours, led by Jose. That's the only thing that's missing, man. Yeah, that would be a whole lot of fun doing a podcast from inside a car. <laughs> we, next time, we, next time. We did that one time, and in fact, one of the people that are going to be providing food over there is uh, Chef Leo Davila from Sticks and Stones uh, there at the event. So, really excited to see him there as well. Uh, I want to make sure and just give uh, our, our two guests. They're proper dues because they've worked very hard in what they do. So uh, let me go ahead and introduce both of our guests first with their bios. Jose Rolat is Texas Monthly's taco editor, writing about tacos and Mexican food. He is the author of American Tacos, a history and guide. In 2022, he won a James Beard Award for his Texas Monthly Tex-Mex Explainer column. On a personal note, I also consider Jose one of my great tocayos who has taken a goofball like me under his wing, and I want to personally thank him for his mentorship and friendship. Jose, welcome to the show. Appreciate you, homie. Thank you. It's great to be here, man. And, of course, not far off is my L.A. homie, Gustavo Arriano. He is a columnist 
for the Los Angeles Times, covering Southern California, everything and a bunch of West and beyond. He previously worked at the OC Weekly, where he was an investigator reporter for 15 years and editor for six. Wrote a column called Ask a Mexican. If you didn't know about that column, come on, y'all. ¿Qué estás haciendo? And is also the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. He's also the child of two Mexican immigrants, one of whom came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. And look at this, Gustavo. Here we are talking on a digital platform after that incredible journey. Gustavo, ¿cómo estás tú, man? How you bien, doing? Bien, bien. Just uh, doing the grind, you know? <laughs> As always, I'm really honored to be surrounded virtually, but also in friendship with these two stalwarts of the Latino community who are continuously doing the work to uplift la cultura and nuestra gente. So let's go ahead and get started with the conversation. I, I want to really talk about this debate that's coming up. Uh, there is a debate being hosted by TPR, Texas Public Radio, uh, here in San Antonio, Texas. And they're going to have a debate called Great SA Tex-Mex Debate. And so basically, they're going to be talking about Tex-Mex food, its evolution, and maybe some of the controversies regarding it right now as it goes. First of all, Jose, I wanted to ask you really quick, how did you come across this debate? What, what's going on? What was the genesis of this? And, and kind of tell our listeners a little bit of why this debate is happening right now. So I was invited via Instagram by Stephen Pizzini, owner of Lala's Gorditas. His grandmother established one of the first puppy taco joints, and one of the, and I think I think it's Gustavo's favorite puppy taco joint, Teca Molina. I mean, Teca Molina is awesome. Yeah, yeah. So. So that was his grandmother. He now uses the same molino that his family's used for three generations to grind his nixtamalized corn. It's from 1935, and and it's still used. Anyway, uh, he's he's he he's going to be on the panel. He, he he reached out to me because I made a big stink about uh about a restaurant uh big because I've I spent a lot of time thinking about the immigrant experience and how children have greater opportunities thanks to the backbreaking work. So their parents, Gustavo and I are two examples. We have benefited greatly from farm workers, farmers, fruit pickers, all, all that stuff. And one of those things is opening Tex-Mex restaurants, right? That's hard work. The first Tex-Mex restaurant was not in San Antonio, was not owned by a white man. It was owned by a Mexican woman from south of Marfa by the name of Maria Borunda. And that opened in 1887. And so it pisses me off when everyone says Tex-Mex is white food and Tex-Mex is uh, trash well you know what the mexicans and the the mexican americans who opened and worked those restaurants 
have been able to send their kids to college, to, to send their kids to Harvard. I know one person who went to Harvard and then came back to work the family restaurants. Right? That's not white things. That's the raza. And so uh, Pazzini saw this and was like, hey, you get it. Join this. So I said, okay. <laughs> Sliding into your DMs, man. Yeah, yeah. I was literally going to say that right now. Y'all, you heard it here first. Jose's DMs are open, y'all. Okay, so, so go ahead and slide in. But Jose, thank you so much for remarking on that. You are absolutely right. There are a lot of people that talk about Tex-Mex and its origins and so forth. And Gustavo, you've talked about this as well, you know, where, you know, these regional kind of takes on food, people start saying that, hey, they're not authentic or they're not traditional, et cetera. You know, tell us a little bit more about your involvement with the debate and how you feel about that as well. Yeah, I'm the token Californian uh, here to talk trash on San Antonio, not on Tex-Mex, not on the worth of its food. I think it's amazing. Not on the whether it's quote-unquote authentic. Of course it's authentic. It's absolutely authentic. It's a style of Mexican food, the way Calmex is, the way uh, Sonoran food in Arizona is, the way New Mexican food is, the way Denmex food is in Colorado. I am not debating that. But what I am telling Texas and especially San Antonio, is that you folks used to be cool in the conversation on Mexican food in the United States, especially San Antonio. They were the pioneers. Uh, I, you know, I did a book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. So I always think about history. I always think about patterns. I always think about um, trends. And San Antonio, if I had to rank the five most influential cities when it comes to the development of Mexican food in the United States, number one, easily, easily, San Antonio beats Los Angeles by a long shot. But the last great innovation San Antonio gave the United States was uh, nachos, and that was in the and ballpark nachos, and that was in the 1970s uh, by Frank Liberto. And the development actually happened in Dallas, in Arlington Stadium. Nothing has happened since. Don't get me wrong; I love the food that Jose took us, Rodrigo and Eddie, Lee's great, all these different places. But I just got so crestfallen when we went to that birria spot, birria that is, which, by the way, comes originally to the United States from Los And to look like they're cool, this uh, uh, Taquera trailer had an L.A. sign like the L.A. Dodgers. I'm like, San Antonio, you don't need L.A. to be cool. What on earth is going on? So that's what I'm going to say. I, I like to challenge people. Jose, the plaudits, the James Beard Awards. And by the way, of course, he deserves them. I am the prophet who is rejected by all, but their truth is always going to rise up, even if the public, you know, forgive them for they have sinned by thinking that the enemy is Austin when really the enemy is yourselves, Tex-Mexicans. Man, I got to stand up and clap for that one. That was, <laughs> <laughs> you definitely have that electrifying personality because you were at the Taco Fest last year and you said the same thing in front of hundreds of San Antonians who were just taken aback by your comments. But it's true, though. And I think this is why this Tex-Mex debate is something that's worth talking about. What is going on with Tex-Mex that maybe has created some change? Because I know that 
part of this conversation was generated through an Axios column where our good friend Rosa Contreras, who was there with our Nuestra Palabra celebration last year, October. But he had an article where he talked about what was the death of Tex-Mex. When I read that, I said, wow, what, what does that mean with the death of Tex-Mex? And I know you're coming down to debate that, Gustavo, but when you hear this debate, what does it mean to you that the death of Tex-Mex is occurring? What, what, what is that? How does it look like? I mean, I said this in my book in 2012, and here we are. Tex-Mex is still alive and vibrant. And Russ mm-hmm. is a very good compa of all of ours. I think was he what he was trying to get at is Mexican food in Texas is changing, has always especially at a time now where, excuse me, it's so easy to dismiss the combo platter and the puffy tacos and the rolled tacos of El Paso and the fajitas that came from the valley became popular at Nimfas, of course, in Houston, and the breakfast tacos, of course, Texans have been eating forever, but then, of course, Austin took credit for it. Those things, like, people want to know what's the next innovation. And, And just looking at it from afar, I would not I would not say that Tex-Mex is dead. So I take back what I said a decade ago, but it is changing and it's becoming more Mexican. Patricia Sharp, uh, Jose's uh, colleague at Texas Monthly and predecessor in many ways. I, I, and I talked about this in my book. She said that we're now in the era of Mex-Tex. And I thought that was a really great way of putting it because you have had in the past 15 years a big migration of people from northern Mexico, from, you know, Tamaulipas. You know, it's the historical migration quarters, but more so than ever, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, Chihuahua, bringing in those styles, those traditions, and really becoming part of that Texas landscape in a way that you don't see it anywhere in the United States. Like, oh, you're saying the word for hamburger in Spanish, but you say hamburguesas in Texas, no, it's a very specific dish that exists nowhere else. So how is that going to coordinate then for uh, the future of Tex-Mex? And Jose, the great thing about Jose's work is that he's been documenting this in real time, which makes his reading so essential right now. And also just so yummy. I I, I need to go. I'm so happy to go to San Antonio because I'll be able to eat, if only for a little bit, but at least get that food that I'm not getting in California. Why don't we eat some quesados? I know of a new place. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Gustavo. The interesting thing is, yes, that it's de- developing and fast, but I I hate to to give praise to NAFTA, but it opened, or I should say, it reopened markets slowly, so that what had become a food of commodity, of industry, of long-haul trucking uh, can now become fresh. You you can get all the chilies you want. You can get special rice. You can get all these things easily. And you can put it in a suitcase or you can import it legally. But it's there. It's around. And it's wide open. Uh, and that's led to uh, where Gustavo's hinted at, which is this, this Mexicanization. But uh, we have to remember it was Mexican to begin with. It, it, yes. it, it did a little lollygagging it didn't you know it 
it got lost along the way, maybe, you know, but that's just part of the journey. And I think we can all agree that that's one of the things that makes Tex-Mex so fascinating. I've been able to, uh, fortunate enough to have tacos and food with both of y'all. And I think that's one of the kind of the, the things about food, right? It brings people together, but we also see the evolution of food and how those new waves come through and how how people, when they migrate to different places, they use what they have. And, and I know Jose, we've talked extensively about that, but maybe you can kind of tell our listeners a little bit about that history, about Tex-Mex food and how it really came about through necessity more than anything. Well, there was this little war. <laughs> well, there were two wars. Two little wars. <laughs> there two, was, two very little wars, yes. <laughs> there was one in 1836 and then a uh, sequel in in 1846 uh, that ended in 1848 uh, with, with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ceded all lands north north of the Rio Grande to coastal California to the U.S. Now, it wasn't all there because you had the Gatson territory, which was a little pocket uh, down in Arizona, and Texas was already part of the U.S. Uh, but that border closed off markets and forced really forced people into poverty because they lost access to trade. They lost access to family and they lost their land. Uh, So their generational wealth was gone and, and they had to rely on commodity foods one became Velveeta, which is the basis of chili con queso. And I don't care what anyone says, but it's already perfect <laughs> with Velveeta. And, and, and even to this day, when you look at the Rio Grande Valley, which has a 33% poverty rate, people need to, need to innovate with what they have. And even when they have a little, they can do a lot. And that gave birth to the earliest forms of Tex-Mex. It was eventually codified by industrialization, refrigeration, canning, for example, which uh, begs the question, why is it so bad outside of Texas? If it's yeah. all the same, if it comes from a can, why is it so bad? Gustavo, do you know? No, I mean, I think a yeah. lot of it is also, I mean, what makes great food? It's not just the ingredients. It's a sazon. And what I mean by sazon, of course, it's that what the person, the chef, the cook puts into that food, the love, the heritage. I mean, like water for chocolate, the greatest example that what we talk about when it comes to sazon. And in Texas, it's in you're, it's in the blood and the hands and the sweat and tears and dreams of generations of men, but especially women who make who can elevate what seems to be the simplest of combo platters covered in cheese 
and yet make it such an exquisite meal the way you wouldn't be able to do the same if you're not of, of that in say Wisconsin or just replicating it like so many of the uh, what I call the surmex restaurants across the south. Maybe especially because as an outsider, you know, per se, I mean, I, I would say that you're, you know, honorary Texan, especially yeah. the way you were so uh, you. the last time you were at the Taco Fest and just stood up to everybody. That was definitely, you know, <laughs> quite the performance there. But as an outsider and seeing the kind of the evolution of Tex-Mex and seeing how, like you said, even Mex-Tex and how it's changed and so forth, and then seeing other cuisines going to like L.A., and you just mentioned kind of the different, what do you think has given Tex-Mex that longevity, but also now maybe has given it its quote unquote decline recently? What happened was that when the United States thought of quote unquote Mexican, they first thought of Texas, because again, the two little wars, the first one, of course, it was all about Mexican. And my book talks about how the initial dispatches about Mexican food from Texas was that it was something poisonous. It was something to keep away. But America, that's how it always comes out with Americans. But then they actually taste it. And it's amazing. The first famous uh, chefs, if you will, of Mexican food was, of course, from San Antonio, the legendary Chili Queens. Uh, back when Chile con carne was seen as not a Tex-Mex thing, but a Mexican thing. And so Texas has what? That was the 1880s, so it's a 140-year head start on almost everyone else. So they were able to define what Mexican food was. They were able to export what constituted as Mexican food. Everything that so many people across the country now think of as a joke, or at least non-Mexican, nachos, fajitas, and Old El Paso, the hard shell tacos, tortillas in a can, um, you know, the, the chilies can, all of that, that was what stood as Mexican food for decades. And when people made Mexican food, quote unquote Mexican food across the United States, really until the 1960s and I would argue 1970s, it all came from Texas. So that was a head start. Now, what kept it in its, I guess, in amber, in case in amber that there hasn't been that exportation was that California started rising up and California started exporting its big things of Calmex food. The big, huge burritos, Chipotle. I mean, of course, look, Texas, of course, had its burritos from El Paso. Amazing burritos, by the way. I think so underrated burritos, but Americans love big. So they started going for the Chipotle style burrito, which of course came from the Mission District in San Francisco. The taco truck, which came from Los Angeles. The, you know, fusion tacos, even though San Antonio, Jose was great on this. The pork chop taco, the German taco, the Polish taco. They came to San Antonio going back, God, over a century because of the, you know, rich cross-pollination. You actually have to do an essay on this, Jose, like a full essay, just German San Antonio influence, New Braunfels influence on Tex-Mex food because it's so huge. And even though you wrote about it, I just think it deserves its own pull-away point. You know, well, Los Angeles Los Angeles did in Austin and took away all that credit from Texas and said, oh, we invented fusion tacos with like Cote, you know, Korean tacos and all of this. And now you're doing the same with birria. Like in the eternal war between California and Texas, California is on top. But again, I say that I always tell people I am the objective voice here. I will trash my own community in the name of the bigger Unite All of Us. And I'm the one 
who's gone and tried all these places. And number two is going to be Jose, of course, just only because I have a head start on Jose. And of course, Jose is catching up. But I am the one who could talk about all the Mission Burritos. I am the one, as an outsider, who could talk about all these different uh, Tex-Mex cuisines from Texas itself instead of talking shit. Sorry, I get so emotional on this. And I could say it is great food. It is absolutely great food. And that's why when I say this with love. Tex-Mex, you got to step it up because those Californios, they are uh, wiping you across the billboard, so to speak. He does have a mighty head start and <laughs> wouldn't be able to do this if it weren't for a few things. Taco Bell and, and Gustavo Ar Arrellano. It was a great resource for my own book, but uh, Gustavo's right. What he mentioned overtly earlier and what he's getting at now is this, inf this inferiority complex that, that San Antonians have, and they don't need it. It's their birthright. Yes, It belongs to them just as it belongs to all of South Texans. And no one needs to get hurt when they're getting trolled. Uh, the best response on social media, if you, if you want to win a fight, don't engage. Huh. Unfortunately, San Antonians always engage. And they'll, and they'll hash up memes from years ago to try and prove a point that they don't need to make. They've already won. History is on their side. That's enough. Uh, and I, I can't wait to go back this week, talk with my friends about San Antonio Tex-Mex, to eat it, to um, talk crap about it. You know, I to celebrate it because it is one of our treasures. It's one of our national treasures. And by national, I mean Texas. I love that, Jose. A couple of points there. Don't worry, Gustavo. Speak freely from your heart. This is live stream right now. The FM broadcast will be edited by yours truly, so don't worry about that. Uh, then second of all, folks, this is why he's an honorary Texan. He actually knows where New Braunfels is on the map and actually knows that New Braunfels <laughs> is between Austin and San Antonio. Okay. How many of y'all know this, okay, outside of California, outside of Texas? No, nobody. That's why Gustavo gets the honorary status. Thank but you. Gustavo, you make a great point as well. So say regarding this legacy that there is in Tex-Mex food, and then particularly with San Antonio. And Jose, you kind of alluded that that attitude of San Antonio that has and as a San Antonian who moved to Houston and they came back, I hundred percent agree with you. San Antonio always playing kind of little brother or even little sister. It has this attitude of it, even though it's rich in legacy. Uh, it's noted in your book, Gustavo, as well as yours, Jose regarding that San Antonio kind of wearing that kind of chip on his shoulder. Does that kind of carry itself and why it says, Hey, you know why Tex-Mex is dying and this and that 
Is it because of that? Is it because maybe there's an attitude that prevails within San Antonio that maybe, hey, you know what? Maybe Tex-Mex needs to evolve and we don't want it to evolve. Because I'll I'll end right here. There are plenty of examples of Tex-Mex food in San Antonio. But like Gustavo said, the innovation has just ran dry. You know, and now you see the proliferation of other uh, foods, uh, different regions and so forth. And so I, I think it's just curious to note that and to kind of say, hey, what is really going on that Tex-Mex is now kind of seen as, you know, maybe past wave as opposed to that new wave of food? Well, it's a very San Antonian thing to not want something to change. Specifically, I'd say it's very, it's a very South Side San Antonio thing. Super South Side San Antonio, you know it. <laughs> uh, I think that a lot of what we have and a lot of what we already s- celebrate uh, as either Tex-Mex or Mexican, and I would argue Tex-Mex is Mexican food, uh, yes. are places that are thriving right now. Like gorditas have always been part of the Tex-Mex canon. And they're seeing a resurgence right now, one that is delightful because they are, I would say they're more diverse than tacos because you can put the filling in the masa and not even open the masa, not even open it. It's there. It's mixed in. Uh, That's particularly northern Mexico. But you know what? We live in northern Mexico. Uh, and uh, La Las Gorditas is, I don't know, like three years old, part of a third generation restaurant family. And this guy nixtamalizes his own corn for these gorditas that are just pop with corn flavor and with corn aroma, and then he does bean cups with the same corn. Like, you can't get better than that. This is amazing. Uh, this is, or these are examples of historically important dishes revived through Mexican American exchanges. The bean cup is definitely Tex Mex. It's also cow mex but when you nixtamalize corn for it that's that's next level and that is tex-mex changing and in wonderful ways uh so it's changing in big ways and changing in small ways uh and we can't stop it history tells us Mexican food always wins, right? <laughs> it does. It always will, too. Yeah, it, it's it's beating me a couple of times, Jose. <laughs> a few times, yo. <clears throat> um, let's let's go ahead now. So I want to just shift a little bit. I know I want to be respectful of y'all's time. I appreciate y'all. And again, I want to remind folks, especially if you're in the San Antonio area, this Thursday, uh, Gustavo and Jose and others will be part of a panel discussing that. It's called Great Essay, the Tex-Mex Debate, to discuss Tex-Mex food, how it happened, and why it's so controversial. They will be here in San Antonio, Texas, 
at the Irma and Emilio Nicholas Media Center in collaboration with the City of San Antonio World Heritage Office. Uh, 6 p.m. this Thursday, there's going to be light eats, all kinds of good stuff and so forth. So really appreciate being able to talk about that. But before we end the show, I did want to kind of get with y'all particularly regarding y'all's roles. Uh, I mentioned earlier the importance of having representation or, or the roles that you have in uh, representing us. And I want to speak specifically to y'all's roles that you have right now. Uh, specifically, Gustavo, I'll start with you. you. You certainly have had your own success being an investigative reporter, an editor, <clears throat> and probably having one of the most kind of polarizing yet successful Latino Mexican oriented columns ever in Ask a Mexican. And, and for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, for me, it was always the fact that you wrote the nosotros para ellos. In other words, you wrote on behalf of us for them. And we know what we talk about them. Tell us a little bit more about that experience in case folks don't know and how you still manage to carry on that spirit of that column and all the work that you do. Yeah, Ask a Mexican was a column that exactly what it sounds like. People would send me questions about Mexicans and I would answer them. And the purpose was to debunk, deconstruct, and destroy stereotypes and misconceptions that people had about Mexicans, including ourselves. So I never wrote for a gabacho audience. I ultimately wrote for myself. I thought, all right, well, if someone's going to write to me a question, uh, if I'm going to like it, I'll play around with it. If I'm not going to like it, I'll play around with it even more. And it was syndicated all over Texas, came out in San Antonio, in El Paso, in Houston, in Dallas, never cracked Austin because who cares about Austin, right? Um, you know, and but all across the United States. And that purpose, you know, I always try to, it's interesting because I never talk about it anymore. I'm a Metro columnist now. I have to deal with politics in Los Angeles. I actually don't even get to write about food that much. So that's why I love it. If I'm going to Texas, it's not for a news story, it's for food. So that makes happy uh because it's just a part but of course i still keep my eyes and uh, you know my eyes and my finger on the pulse of what's going on nationwide but where ask a mexican where i, I think we're asking mexican translating to taco usa is that people always had so many questions about mexican food there's so many misconceptions and uh urban legends really and i was an investigative reporter from the start like so once i actually put in my mind all right investigating who exactly invented tortillas in a can who invented the frozen margarita who did all of this now let's tell it and then see the trends all right who's gentrifying who's taking credit for all of that and texas is just on a whole other level even more so than california because in california the united states knows california really for los angeles the southern california area san francisco and that's it the rest of it is one big giant mystery Texas, people know Dallas, people know Houston, people know San Antonio, especially now San Antonio has gotten bigger. Austin, obviously. El Paso is still not as much, but still it's such a huge state that people come to, um, you know, people have their ideas of it. So they're looking to Texas. This is a bigger state than California. We in California always forget that. So I think what I try to do is just be upfront and be truthful because very few people are privileged enough to be traveling around the country to write about Mexican food. Jose and myself, we're one of like, I would say five people. Bill Esparza, although Bill really just does more Mexico in California, not the rest of the United States. Stephen Alvarez can, uh, you know, the Taco Literacy Profe University, but he's also, a, <laughs> his day job is an English professor. And that's really it. So I think my, you know, but my job is more so, I am John the Baptist. I'm making the way for Jose to come and deliver us the gospel 
of what is great Tex-Mex food. I'm the one who is more than happy to take the booze because I know at the end, people will pay attention to what I say and they'll say, he was right. And by that point, Jose will have done the good job to be able to put people to a better place. But, but eventually, I'm going to be crucified. But then you will come back. Uh, that's right. You know, that's, that's the I'm thing, man. I'm going to There you go. Who, who has the worst fate? Yeah, yeah. Remember, they say he he has risen, Jose. Okay, that's what happens three days later, bro. You'll be fine. With, with our opinions, we get lambasted every day. We get attacked every day on Twitter. Uh, and it, it it's an it's not an occupational hazard anymore. It's just part of the job description. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, and to speak truth to power, you know, in a very Latino way uh, is uh, is a privilege. Uh, I never thought I'd be here. I don't think Gustavo th thought he'd be here. Uh, and I'm just lucky enough to listen to people tell their stories so that I can uh, get that across to anyone who will read. Jose, I, I did want to mention, I mean, that is part of the what the question I was going to ask you. You know, I've, I've actually had a privilege of joining you on these taco escapades, if you will. I, I know that you hear this a lot, but just in case some of our raza hasn't heard yet, tell us more about being named. And I know you just said right now it's kind of, you know, a little show busy or, you know, maybe just for for uh, to pop. But being taco editor for Texas Monthly. That, that has to have changed the culinary and literary landscape here in Texas in a particular way where only you as a taco editor could have done so because let, let's face it, we know that Texas Monthly was not really designed for us, right? And so for you to be called taco editor was definitely a shift. Tell us a little bit more about that, but Gustavo, you got a point you want to make. Yeah, people, if you're not from Texas, people do not appreciate how important it was for Texas Monthly to pick Jose as a taco editor that was huge i mean we talk about representation or rather lack of it and texas monthly it always has its latino reporters or essays or whatnot but to create a position like taco editor no one else in the rest of the country or people outside of texas cannot appreciate that but people can appreciate the idea of what a taco editor was so when jose was announced at that number one they're like oh that's dumb and offensive number two oh you're not mexican how dumb so jose got all sorts of crap. And me right off immediately, like, nope, Jose knows his stuff. I stand by him. If you're going to talk trash on him, you have to go through me first. And Jose, I mean, who's laughing now? The, you know, the Oscars of the of the food world, of food writing, James Beard. Jose won what? Well, you won two in one year. That is like, no, very few people do that. And that shows to the quality of his work. And now, I mean, he's always going to get haters, but now people realize, oh, no, Jose is doing great work. And the fact that he's doing it in Texas Monthly, I mean, look, Texas Monthly is writing it all the way to the bank, thank God. And it just shows, again, the importance of our work. So Jose's writing is great. Of course, it's great. But the fact that he, who he's doing it for it just makes it that much more historic. That's it. I'll be quiet now. Gosh, man. Jeez. I'm gonna start you know, I'm crying. not lying, man. So I'm going to start crying. You know, I think 
I tried calculating this and I asked the Beard Foundation about this. They couldn't give me an answer, but I think I'm the first Puerto Rican to ever win a James Beard Award. Mm. And, and that more historic. Yeah, that 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 hurts, you know, because I don't know, for some reason. Rita Moreno should have won one for for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> Just for being her. No, so the title, Taco Editor, it's buzzy. It's something I came up with uh, to, to get into people's heads. Uh, I'm a guy whose job is to write about Mexican food, Mexican food culture, and the people behind it. Uh, and it, it is a beautiful job. It is a job that can sometimes lead to tears. I was in Juarez uh, at, the beginning, at the beginning of this year listening to a molinero describe his mission of rescuing nearly extinct Chihuahuan corn. That's God's work. And I'm lucky to be able to pass that story along. You were with me last week when we heard from this woman who who had open heart surgery last year, who two weeks ago had her truck broken into and and has and had to go through all these hor horrible things. And one of, the, one of the most wonderful things I've ever heard is something she said. We are the architects of our own lives, but God tests us and supports us. Uh, it's that double-edged sword of free will and faith and uh, and just working just working figuring it out by just going full steam ahead and it's a work ethic that i share it's a work it's a work ethic that gustavo shares because he's prolific at the wazoo i don't know how that man yeah. sleeps with two dogs and a family and and then his wife has a store you should go to the store yeah <laughs> uh, yeah uh it's i mean it, it's a joy and, and to be able to to be privy to these tales uh it's, it's i'm the luckiest man. yeah it is a privilege i'm the luckiest man in the world I get to tell these stories that other people would not probably have heard if it weren't for me going, hey, uh, can I take a picture? Or, hey, what's your name? I really like what you're doing. <laughs> what's this about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jose, Gustavo, I know both of you all have things to do. 
I really appreciate you joining us here on the program. Really excited that y'all came on board and talked a little bit about Tex-Mex food, but also a little bit about your story as well. Uh, before y'all leave, Gustavo, uh, where can folks reach you? Where can they, you know, if they want to send you an email or like cuss you out or something, yeah. where can they get to you and, and talk to you? Easiest way, sign up to my newsletter. Go to gustavoariano.org, sign up. It's free every Saturday morning. I send out a missive. I put together all the things that I wrote for the week. I put a picture, a song, uh, you know, a song of the week, quote of the week, article of the week, all sorts of stuff. And then if you just want to email me, just hit me up on Twitter, at Gustavo Ariano. There you go. You, you heard it here, folks. His DMs are also open. Oh, yeah. Oh, Jose, yeah. how can folks reach you if they want to give it to you? And what would be something you want to highlight right now? Uh just reach me at taco trail on all social media platforms i write weekly for texasmonthly.com and occasionally in print uh you can follow along my travels via twitter and instagram and yell at me from whatever platform you want i can take it well, we appreciate it. Gustavo and Jose will be at the Great Essay Tex-Mex debate going on this Thursday. TPR will be hosting it. Uh, it's going to be a great debate, a lively debate. I'm, ex I'm, I'm sure of it. Uh, Jose brings the punches with the historical facts. And Gustavo just brings punches, punches and punches. And punches. <laughs> but please join us there. The punche. And <laughs> punche. I wish I had punche. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> punches and punche. Oh, and pinche. Don't forget the pinche. <clears throat> That sounds like a great combo boxing event, you know? That? <laughs> but but I really appreciate both of y'all taking the time to join us. Thank y'all so much. And right now, I want to take a few moments just to thank our crew. Roxana Guzman is the producer of our show here on the, on the live stream. Thank you so much, Roxana, for always doing the magic behind the scenes. I also want to give props, of course, to El Mero Mero, Tony Diaz, El Libre Traficante. He is the author of the book, The Tip of the Pyramid, is also the literary curator for the Latino Bookstore here at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center in El Metal Hueso of San Antonio, Texas. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. As always, my name is Rodrigo Bravo. I've been a guest host here. I'm also the audio engineer slash producer slash all kinds of things that I do because I am Mexican. I do a whole bunch of things. With that said, thanks everybody for joining us and I hope to see you out there on the Taco Trail. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. We even said. Esta es la pequeña de 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 la pequeña de